Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. This sermon was recorded during our Sunday morning gathering in West Boise. Everything we do is to help you connect with God, find real community, and discover your purpose. Follow us online at redemptionboise.org or on Instagram at redemptionboise. All right, so I want to talk a little bit about both where we're at as Redemption Hill, but even more broadly, kind of the moment that we're in in our culture, because I think that things are shifting and changing underneath our feet. And a lot of us still work within these paradigms, thinking about our faith and our place in the world like we have our entire lives. For most of us, our vision of who we are is was pretty deeply settled by the time we're 25, and then over time that morphs and changes, but we don't always keep track of kind of the broader culture, and that's one of my jobs as your pastor is to keep things clear for you about where we are, where we're going, and how God wants to work and to use us and to have us be a part of what he's doing in this moment right now, okay? So today I'm going to be talking a little bit about secularization, which is a long, fancy word of saying that a culture is moving away from religion. And there was this hypothesis that was put forward about 100 to 140 years ago by this group of German and French philosophers who basically said that there's a direction to history, and it's this progress towards some sort of non-religious, humanistic utopia. And the way that they describe that um, is, let's see... There's the title slide. All right, so they talked about there's, there's kind of this direction of, of how religion has gone in lots of different cultures around the world. You have these ancient religions that are superstitious, polytheistic. It's basically them looking at the world and trying to make sense of it based on their interaction with nature. And over time, that develops into a, a medieval or monotheistic religion, which is an advanced form of religion that is based on holy texts and creeds and traditions. And then the last phase is what they would call enlightenment or modernity, which is um, a movement beyond religion into some secular reality that takes what they got from religion, takes the religious and spiritual parts of it away, and just leave it with the fruits of it. And this is um, the direction of this hypothesis had been unchallenged for many years until the middle of the 20th century and postmodernism really threw some wrenches into this because what we're discovering and what sociologists or religions are saying is that in the world, in the West, we have been moving in and out of secularization for many years, but around the world, we're both getting more religious and less religious at the same time. There is no sort of trajectory of progression in humanity but it's this natural cycle that changes and has reaction and action within it. And so not only are we becoming more religious and less religious, we're becoming more secular and less secular all the time. And we've talked a little bit about post-modernity, which is this reaction to modernity, and that's a deconstruction of the what, what philosophers call the plausibility structures. And what plausibility structures are, it's this. It's all the things that we get from our culture that tells us how to believe and how to live that's settled as a group. So when you step into any sort of worldview, you have these plausibility structures that says, here's who you are, here's where you came from, here's where you're going, here's how to live. And over the last 60 years, we've seen 
every one of those plausibility structures has been deconstructed and left on the table. There's nothing left for us. As a culture, we're just kind of in this um, free-floating space. And uh, this is the way that Richard Rorty, he, he's a philosopher, but he, he basically says the postmodern vision is a social vision um, that's a maximum material prosperity for all combined with an aesthetician's culture of self-creating individuals. What does that mean? It means we're rich and things are beautiful and you have autonomy as a self-creating individual. This is the end game of postmodernity is to strip everything of its meaning and then hopefully create something that is that feels good and looks good and allows me to do whatever the heck I want. That's our culture that we live in. Um, in some ways, this is what all of us live in right now. This is the assumption of our Western culture. Everywhere you go, from Western Europe to North America to Australia and some of the, some of the outlying parts of the British Empire, the West, this is the de facto. They, they, postmodernity has won. It has become the de facto way that we see the world. Um, it's marked by experience and personal autonomy as the ultimate authority. So rather than looking to expertise or position or institutions to have authority and to give us cultural narratives, everyone imagines that their opinion is just as worthwhile as every expert's because all of us are the authority of our own truth. I bet some of you are going, yeah, of course. <laughs> that's, that's what I believe. That's what I live in. When you look back at some of the um, depictions of the future, like do you remember um, some of the dystopian uh, futuristic books of the 19th and 20th century? Like 1984, they have this emergence of Big Brother and this totalitarian regime. And in the West, that never materialized. It's not there. We, we are, even though we have the technology, we've moved less towards authoritarianism and more towards individual autonomy. As a people, even if we have authorities over us, we treat them as if they have no say in how I live my life. Even if they have legal authority, I don't give them the way, I don't give them the authority over how I see myself. We imagine a future like the Los Angeles of Blade Runner in 1984, that book? I, mean, I can't remember what year that came out. But Blade Runner had this dystopian vision of an ugly, overrun, culturally broken place. And in 2019, that's not what has happened. What has happened is it's gone kind of the other direction. Instead of this postmodern, post-Christian world rejecting the, the structures of Western Christendom, it did that, but at the same time, it kind of took the fruits and the good parts that Western Christianity had built, and it, and it feasts on them and creates what continues to be a beautifully designed, curated, and controlled megacities with incredible wealth and opportunities for material prosperity. That is the vision of what's becoming right now. Instead of having this ugly, dystopian future, we're moving into this um, broken, utopian future where things are beautiful and prosperous but lack what we're looking for in life. So the modern, pr liberal, progressive cities of which Boise has become a destination, 
just like many of the other cities that went before us, they would say that the values that they received from Christianity are their highest ideals. Diversity, equality, and religious tolerance. Those are all inventions of Western Christianity. But Christianity has no part in the, in the cultivation or the creation of the city moving forward. It was useful then, but now the world has moved on from Christianity's um, cultural influence. In short, our world wants the kingdom, this flourishing utopia, without a king. This world wants a beautiful kingdom filled with flourishing humanity with no king over it because we already have a king. And who's the king? It's me. It's the self. So we have these beautiful, clean, controlled, safe, easy, automated, affluent cities of radically autonomous individuals. And these are the utopian promises of our politicians and the techno elites who sell their solutions to our modern problems. The internet promises convenience, access, and connection, freedom to be myself and what I want to be. If you think about it, you live better than the kings of every age before you. You have access at the click of a button to literally any material good on the planet to be delivered to you in two short days, soon to be one day, soon to be same day. Think about that. A generation ago, if somebody wanted something from the Far East, it was not available to them in any short period of time, and it took incredible wealth to procure it. But here we are with our iPhones. We can choose not only Amazon, but hundreds and thousands of other online retailers who will bring it to my door and my fingertips. We live these powerful, amazing lives. So this is kind of the, the post-modern equation. Freedom plus connections equals the utopia of the affluent autonomy. So what that means is if I have freedom and I have connection to a world around me, and that assumes a level of then affluence, I then have autonomy to have and to get whatever I want and do whatever I want. This is the promise of our postmodern world. So where is the church in this postmodern moment? To the world around us? kind of irrelevant. They've taken what they wanted from Christ, that Christ had to offer, the wisdom of monotheism, the flourishing of cooperative communities built on the rule of law. The world's decided that it's gotten what it's needed, and now the church sits on the sideline for people who are still trying to discover more than the benefits that the post-Christian world has wrung from it. And in a way, we've arrived at that conclusion. This moment of history in the West is where we have everything that we could have ever wanted. Access to every item on earth. Access to all information. All information from human history. Less violence, less crime, less disease than any other time in humanity. That is the West today. And yet, even at our highest ideal, it's not what we're looking for. We have these beautiful, clean, affluent cities with individuals living radically autonomous lives who are dying inside. So why in this modern utopian shrine to progress do we see a spike in anxiety, in depression, in suicide, and in loneliness? The world around us is less likely to kill us than at any time in human history, and we are much, 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 much more likely to kill ourselves because of it. What is going on? We've fallen into this new trap of a kind of modern Gnosticism. 
So like the ancient uh, Gnostics, it was born out of Christianity. They believed that if they understood this secret knowledge of the transcendent world beyond, if, if they arrived through this like intuitive interior means, like if they just thought long enough and deep enough, and they looked inside themselves, they could find this secret knowledge, the gnosis, or the gnosis, however you want to say it. And they would, they would then understand how to detach from this embodied life and live a good life of detachment. That was what the Gnostics believed in the second century. The world they believed was created by a flawed being. They saw the world around it and the suffering that we all had, and they said, that's not our fault. That's the creator's fault. They turned the creation narrative on its head. And they said, so the only way for me to transcend the suffering that's not my fault is to transcend it through self-improvement. And so you can learn this secret way to transcend the physical existence through human progress. And the elites of the late Roman Empire were drawn to it for the same reason that Westerners are today. They were bored. They were unfulfilled with the mundanity of the suffering around them. And we have this new kind of Gnosticism. It's, it's kind of Gnosticism with a postmodern twist. We've deconstructed the systems and the authorities and the institutions and the narratives so that we can be free to our barriers to personal autonomy because this world isn't free, that's why it's not good. Therefore, if I free myself from the strictures of this world, then I will be free, therefore I will make my life good. I will be better once I'm free of the strictures of authority, of institutions that tell me how to live. We've disconnected from anyone that does not serve a direct purpose in our life. That anyone who doesn't help me achieve the sort of self-focused autonomy that we desire, we say they do not belong. And in this postmodern Gnostic scheme of salvation, salvation comes through autonomy. We're saved by being disconnected from the problems and the sufferings of others and the responsibilities that we might have to others. Uh, Richard Rorty, Richard Rorty says this, um, we, we looked at this a minute ago, the maximal, the maximum material prosperity for all combined with an aesthetician's culture of self-creating individuals, okay? So self-creating individuals are only able to do the self-creating that they want if they live in this narrative of a life, narrative of a life beyond authority. So the problems of the modern self-experiences are being restrained by the peoples and the institutions around us. So salvation only comes by destroying the authorities who have any claim over us. Does this sound familiar to you? Does this sound like the world around us and the cultural revolution that we've lived through the last 50 years to tear down every institution that might have some claim of authority over us and, and, and invite us to responsibility to it? Family, government, relationships, Corporations, institutions, schools, teachers, God, and ancient texts like the Bible, we've worked as a people to say none of those have any authority over us. We see this in so many ways. All authority, absolute authority now in the postmodern person resides in the individual. We, we see this, we talk about the pursuit of the authentic self. How many, how many, how many of you have heard that in the last two weeks? Somebody talking about pursuing authenticity or pursuing their authentic self. How many people have heard that 20 times this year? It's, it's a narrative that just perpetuates itself everywhere we go. Maslow in, 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 invented this pyramid of self-actualization where the goal of humanity is to become what, all that I was meant to be so that I can achieve a sort of humanistic nirvana. 
we talk about self-mastery. If I can just figure out me, if I can just figure out my problems and my brokenness, then I can transcend and become who I was meant to truly be. We live in a world of self-help books. You go to a bookstore, there's not much there. All of them are self-help books. <laughs> I don't know if you've been to a bookstore lately, but that's all we consume is something to help me be me better. Um, about a decade ago, there was this book called The Secret where Oprah and her modern Gnostics grabbed hold of this. If you can just grab hold of this secret knowledge about getting the universe to do what you want it to do, you're going to become everything you were meant to be. The prosperity gospel has flourished in our age because it puts the individual as the highest ideal. Therefore, God exists to help you get what you want. And if you just do a few little things, then God is obliged to come through for you. We perfect our bodies, we develop our minds, we look inward to discover the true self, to escape the mundane world around us, to live our fullest life through tips and tweaks and hacks and the secrets of success that we can find through this intuitive secret knowledge of self-discovery. This is our world. But here's the problem with all of, all of our culture. It's this. If we're the authority, we are responsible for ourselves. There's no one around the corner who's going to be for us. We're all alone when we are the king. It's lonely. Heavy is the head that wears the crown. And if all of us are sitting with these crowns squarely upon our little mini kingdoms, all of us are alone, isolated. If we can't trust an authority outside of ourselves, then we have no external resources to draw upon. We're on our own. And this makes us anxious. If we can't trust external resources, we can't build meaningful relationships by offering our need because kings don't offer their need. Queens don't say, help me. Queens say, I will help myself. Kings say, this is my body and my world and I'll make it the way I want to. If we aren't strong enough, if we can't save ourselves and create the better life that we're hope, hoping for, and all of us feel inside when, when someone tells us that you are on your own and that you can make something of yourself, all of us have that nagging question in the back of our mind, do I have what it takes to make something of myself? If we aren't rich or smart, we're lost and we're hopeless when, when you tell somebody who's poor and who's weak and who's vulnerable, you're on your own, you can do it, you know what they feel? They feel lost and alone, and they, they throw up their hands and say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. I don't have the resources to save myself. These are the real problems with this postmodern world, that we're all alone as self-creating individuals. We have to solve all the problems around us. And if you're the absolute authority in your life, there's no one who can save you. There's no one who can take responsibility for you if you're the king. You're all alone trying to save yourself with self-mastery and self-improvement. And I'm not really talking about the world out there, outside of this room. I'm talking about us. This is the way that we, the church, think about ourselves. That we have true autonomy to do whatever we want with these bodies and these lives. I live that way. I fight this every single day. 
This isn't just the postmodern liberal elites in cities like Portland and Los Angeles and New York or London or Melbourne. This is the way that most of us think about our lives. I want to ask you this. Does anybody or anything have true authority to dictate your life? How much of your waking life is fulfilling Rory's vision of pursuing maximum material prosperity and a beautiful culture of self-creating individualism? How much of your day is just seeking those things? This question matters. It matters what we believe and it matters what we think. It matters what we think about these things for two reasons. The first is absolute autonomy is a lie. It's not true. You are not an autonomous individual. You have responsibilities to the people around you. You were placed here and had no part in your creation or your development. You were given a family of origin and you had no power over what it would do to you and how it would affect you. And ultimately, you will die alone if you think that you're going to be the autonomous king that decides everything about your life. It's not true. And the second is this. Believing these things, believing the things that all of our culture believes, it's alienating us from each other. Because as an autonomous individual, I can't let you need me and I can't let myself need you. And it also alienates us from God who's the only one who belongs on the throne of our lives. If God is the source of all life, if we're alienated from him, it means death and suffering in this life and the next. And all that I just shared with you is some of the thoughts of a guy named Mark Sayers. He's a pastor at this church called Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. And he's been working through some of these ideas because until we can precisely speak to the moment we're living in, we can't tear down the idols that are sitting in the way between us and God. So we're going to be spending this week and the next week, we're going to be looking at the letters to the church in Corinth. And we're, we're taking a pretty, it's a pretty significant shift in the life of the church and the life of the Bible when we move from everything is about the Jews to the letters and the epistles because the letters and the epistles are speaking to a Greek and Roman world that is still pre-Christian. It's a world that um, has these robust religious structures that have nothing to do with Jesus. And that's a lot like the post-Christian world we live in today. We are much more like Greek and Roman thinkers than we are like Jewish thinkers. And so what I want to do is I want to invite you to the same challenges that they felt in first century Corinth in this Roman colony we feel today because the ideas of classical Gnosticism and even classical Stoicism has, has moved forward and has taken over our world, and so it's something we need to deal with. If you would, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 today. It says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. So in their system, especially in the Greek and Roman thought system of the first century, wisdom was the highest ideal. 
They had self-help books just like we do, written by guys like Marcus Aurelius and Heraticlus and a bunch of other guys who, who, who took all of the wisdom they could find and they put it together and gave it away, hoping to help people transcend into some sort of morality and godliness and ethic that would make the Roman Empire a better place. God laid in this verse the wise to shame by bringing salvation in a surprising way. All of us are still trying to save ourselves, but we see here that the good news is that we find from God that the Greeks and the Gnostics can't offer, that postmodernism can't offer is this. You are not on your own. You are not the king, and that's good news. The good news is Jesus is Lord, that he's a good king, that he loves his creation, and that he's doing everything he can to bring us into a reconciled relationship with him. You're not responsible for what happens to you. Did you know that? God is the ultimate autonomous ruler over all creation, and he as creator takes full responsibility for everything that happens in creation. He made it. He's responsible for it. Just like if you make a robot that turns into a killer robot, you're responsible for it. Jesus, God is the same way. He's responsible for everything that he made. And that's good news because you're not responsible. And it also helps you understand that because you're not king, you're not responsible for saving all of humanity. You don't have it in you to do that. It sounds like bad news if you were hoping for some like Gnostic postmodern vision of self-improvement for salvation. It's breaking that down. I understand that. And we're going to have to tear some of those things down. But it's good news if you don't have what it takes to, for this kind of, to create a kind of self-actualization that you were hoping for. Are you guys, has anybody ever done a program of self-reflection and working on yourself only to find that you're not very good at working on yourself? Anybody? You, you read a couple self-help books, and you're like, okay, I'm just going to follow the program. If I follow the program, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to have better relationships. My career is going to take off. I just need to figure out this one thing. I just need to get up early enough every day to do the things that I need to do so that my days go well. And then how bad are we at fixing those things? We're terrible at it. We're all disappointed, but particularly the this is... This gospel of Jesus is an affront to the rich, the wise, the powerful, and the noble-born who believe in themselves for salvation from suffering. They think that they have what it takes without an external authority to make themselves into something. And here's the thing. People who are rich, people who are well-born, and people who are smart can fake it for a long time. They're really good at life. People like them. They have lots of stuff. They... Um, their wealth allows them to have autonomy to a certain extent, just like your wealth allows you to have autonomy. But that wealth will deceive us into thinking that we're kings and we're responsible for ourselves and for this world. Your money can't save you. Your nobility can't save you. Your smarts can't save you. But there are some people who don't think that way. They're the people who the gospel sounds like really good news. The poor, the foolish, the plain, the weak, those of ignoble birth. They don't have any illusions about who's in charge. They know it's not them. 
people who are poor and foolish look around and say, I'm not good at this. <laughs> they, they see the world around them. They see it passing by them. They have no illusions. They're not in charge. And so when they hear that someone's in charge, cares about them, and has a way for them to experience the life that they're hoping for, the gospel sounds like really good news. And this gives them the kind of freedom to receive the sort of community with God that they need, the connection that they crave, and that they're made for. And this is why wealth is so dangerous to our souls. Like, wealth itself is, is nothing. But what wealth does when you possess it, it destroys you from the inside out because you believe that the wealth you have will give you the autonomy that you desire to be king. And until those of us who are wealthy and everyone in this room by historic standards has incredible wealth, until we take off that crown and say everything that I have is but dust, and I have no ability this day to make the sunrise or set or breath to come into my lungs each morning, until we realize that we're deeply just situated and put in this place, this wealth and this power and this privilege can damn us and will tear us away from God. The wealthy and the powerful, they live under this dangerous illusion of control and autonomy, but it's all a mirage. The wealthy and the powerful can pretend well. The Instagram influencers and the celebrities, they're trying to sell you the good life through consumption and power and wealth. They tell you that autonomy will give you what you're hoping for. But the good life does not come through those things. And the sooner that we give up on those solutions, the better off we are. The good life comes in a surprising way, and this is where the good life comes it comes through, not through accumulation or self-improvement or moral superiority or autonomous individualism or wealth or position or prestige or through work or through virtue. The world is going to tell you that all those things will give you what you desire. If you just fix yourself, if you just start doing the right things, the world, the universe will start bringing good things to you. How many of you heard, have heard nonsense like that? The universe will start bringing good things to you. But the good life comes in surprising ways. Instead, it comes through suffering and through death and through persecution and through submission and through holiness, through community, through humility, and through grace. Okay, I want to, I want, I want to read that list again. I want you to hear it. Our connection with God, the good life, salvation comes through suffering and death and persecution and submission, and holiness, and community, and humility, and grace. But some of you, when you heard that list, you thought that those things were things that you had to do to get salvation. Were you thinking that? When, when I talked about death, when I talked about suffering, when I talked about persecution, were you imagining that you doing those things was going to bring you salvation? You're still thinking like a postmodern Gnostic. Those things, if you do those things, they will not bring you salvation. But there's really good news. You aren't the king, but you have a Savior who will do those things for you. It's not our suffering that will save us, but Christ. It's not our death that will save us, but Christ. It's not our persecution that will save us, but it's Christ. It's not our submission to the king that will save us, but Christ's submission to the humility on the cross and the will of the Father. 
It's not our holiness that will save us, but Christ. It's not our humility or our grace that will save us, but it is Christ. Salvation is a gift that is given to you, not through attainment and self-improvement, but as a loving gift from a loving creator who loves you more than you can ever imagine. Salvation is found in community with the Father rather than in autonomy. Salvation comes through submission to another king rather than being made king ourselves. We're seeing the cracks on the edges of this postmodern schema of salvation. We're seeing depression and suicide and broken families and isolation and the lack of meaning and dissatisfaction. And we go, this isn't working. There must be something wrong with the world around me because I'm working on it and the world is still the way it is, and I still don't like it, and there's still just evil around me, and so I've got to look outside and fix the evil out there. That's what Gnosticism says, is the evil is in the world around us. Here, I got a little slide for you. So, postmodern Gnosticism says that salvation and power is in me, and the evil is out there in the flawed creation around me. And so, we externalize the brokenness in us, and we start to create meaning by trying to make the world a better place. Instead of realizing that we're broken, we look at the brokenness of the world around us and we try to fix it. They're trying to fi- thereby trying to fix our internal problems, but that doesn't work. You, you dive into politics and you try to fix the world through, through political and governmental means. It doesn't work. You look at the climate crisis and you say, if we can just figure out how to save this world from us, then my life will be better. It doesn't work. We look at the evil out there and we try to fix it. But none of it's going to solve the problem of this man or woman in the mirror that we see. Because the way of Jesus says that evil is inside of me, and salvation and power is in him, the one who's truly king. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 28, it says this. God chose what is low and despised in this world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human might being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Okay, so we've talked through two important ideas. One is our world thinks that our radical autonomy is the highest ideal. And the kingdom of God says that the only way to salvation is through Christ's work on our behalf, which is really good news, that he is the king and we are not, that we're not radically autonomous, but we're radically submitted as beings who have been placed in a kingdom. Whether you believe it or not, you're in God's kingdom and you can either submit and enjoy a relationship with him or you can fight in rebellion against him. It's all of our choice day in and day out. Now, what does this have to do with the future of Redemption Hill and what God is calling us to as a community? Well, it's this. We have a serious problem in this room. You and me, we have this serious problem. All of us are worshiping another God, and we're saying we're following in the way of Jesus. We worship ourselves as the ultimate authority in our lives. We don't consult God. We don't consult godly counsel. Like the Israelites, we do whatever seems right in our own eyes. We don't know the word. We don't let it shape our values. 
We're so busy as self-creating individuals trying to attain the good life that we have no space, no time, no quiet to even see our constant worship of the God of self. We don't like our jobs. We don't like our bosses. So we start working in the gig economy or we start a small business so we can avoid authority over us. That's, that's me. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm somewhat responsible for this organization. I am the pastor here. And I've so internalized this belief system of postmodernity that I wouldn't feel comfortable exercising any authority in any of your lives because I know that none of you think that you have any authority beyond yourself. I've so internalized that I have a hard time of even thinking that you would care what anyone thought about your life, even me, someone who's supposed to be responsible alongside God for your life and your souls. But if there's no one else in charge, then each of us is responsible to save ourselves. I want that to sink into your souls, okay? You can have your own way, but then you're responsible to save yourself. Or you can give away the position of authority in your life and then receive the gift of salvation from God. In 1 Corinthians 2, it says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's where we're going. We, as a congregation, come hell or high water, we are going to pursue to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We're not going to make our way and do our own thing and live as a radically autonomous collection of individuals who trade authority every on a two-week schedule trying to decide who gets to be king this week. That's not how we're going to do it. We're going to know nothing except Christ crucified and raise him up as the king overall and say, we are taking our marching orders from you. This is the future of our congregation. This is the future of the Jesus movement. A group of people have made this radical move to accept the salvation that Jesus offers through his suffering as a gift to us. And with it, the lordship of Christ. That's a part of the gift of God as he is Lord. We place him as the, in the only appropriate place in our lives, on the throne, so that we get the king and the kingdom, so we can see and experience the power of God to transform our lives, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And this isn't just for us, but the hope of the world lies in us being a different kind of community, knowing who the king is. And we're going to talk about that more next week and what that looks like. But we're going to start here. Um, if you've been listening, we need to repent. If you've been paying attention, if you just, if you just woke up, here's, here's the recap. We need to repent, okay? We need to repent. To repent of the way that we've been living, accepting autonomy as the highest ideal of making ourselves God. Our idols aren't made by our hands. Our idols is ourselves. And every other idol in our life, including the one that we have of being called Christian or walking with Christ 
we place that underneath the true God of our lives, which is the self. It's destroying us. It's destroying our families. It's destroying our neighborhoods. It's destroying our souls. So we don't repent by apologizing to God, but by, by doing a new practice. And this new practice is this. Each day, in our minds and in our hearts, we place Christ on the throne and we say, I'm ready for my marching orders. We say, you're in charge of today and every day, but today's the only day I'm in charge of right now, so I'm going to put today in front of you. You're the king of today. Show me what you want. And each day, taking a torch to the idol of self and burning into the ash that it is. He's not just king of our lives. He's king of all. We don't just do this so that he is in charge. Uh, We don't just do this as like the second thing after we're saved. But declaring Jesus as Lord and living that way is the only way we know we belong to God's kingdom. If he's not the Lord of your life, he's not the savior of your life. If he's not the king of your life, he's not the savior of your life. And so each of us have to be real clear about who's king, who's in charge, who gets to decide what I do with today and tomorrow and the next day. If he's the king, he's going to get to call us to change and to call us to obedience in all sorts of areas of our lives. He gets to decide what we do with our wealth, with our leisure, with our success, with our politics, with our pride, with our fear of death with the noise in our lives, with our kids' sports, with our desire for acclaim, our worldliness, our sexual sin, our love of violence, our bodies, our calendars, our sense of self-importance, who we live with, who we sleep with, our judgmental attitudes, our love of power, our love of freedom, our love of safety and of security. He doesn't just get to be king of a few things, but all the things. So as the band comes up right now, I'm going to ask you to pray and to ask some hard questions. Where do you need to yank yourself from the throne of your life and to submit to Christ as king? Lord God, we, uh, this is a hard message for all of us to hear and to receive and to understand. So we pray in these few moments as we sing, in the next few days as we process this message that we see what's in our hearts, that we see the result in our lives, and we see where we've made ourselves the ruler, the autonomous self as king. And you start to tear those things down. And you help us bring a torch to our idols. And you help us every day to practice the work of saying, you're in charge, I take my marching orders from you, and then being shaped by prayer and your word, being spoken over us and helping us see how it is to walk in your way. Not to attain salvation, not to attain the good life, but to walk with you because you're king and to enjoy a connection with you and with one another like we were meant to have. Lord God, prepare us for a sort of radical change in our hearts and lives where we stop asking, what can I get out of this thing? We start asking, God, what's today for? In your holy name we pray. Amen.
This content is meant to help you understand the Bible and what it means to follow in the way of Jesus. But we have seen that this can't happen in isolation. It only happens in community. We'd love to have you join us at Redemption Hill or a church local to you that helps you grow in following Jesus. Drop us an email if you have any questions for our teachers to info at redemptionboise.org.